verse 16. We'll start here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. It says, For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with a loud command and the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so, we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. In reading that, that text is about Jesus coming back to make all things new. And I painted a picture for you that I want to repaint because it's important as we think about Advent. Okay? So, Paul, the apostle, when he's talking about first, in talking in First Thessalonians, he's trying to encourage the believers, and this is kind of the picture he's painting about the end of time. He says it's kind of like a little village. And we'll look at us as a little village. We, we have bakers, we have cooks. We're in this little village. But it's been a long time since we've actually seen the king. And we, we're, not, we're not connected to him very much. The roads have kind of been broken down. There's a lot of you know outlaws running around out there. Jeremiah and Scott aren't here, but I said last week that Jeremiah, but for those of you who don't know Jeremiah oh well, but he's responsible for the roads. He's kind of been a little lazy on that. And the sheriff hasn't been really taking care of things. But we hear that the king is coming. Okay, And so everybody gets really excited about the king coming, and so we start clearing the roads, because you have to have straight roads for the king to come. Not only do you have to have straight roads, but you've got to make sure that people who are robbing the regular travelers on the road Stop doing that. So you've got to get them all rounded up and put in jail. So that's the process that Paul is actually talking about where you and I are. We're getting ready for the king. Now, his description that we just read is how the king comes. So as we straighten the pass and as we're working and getting all the, the bad guys out of the way, we hear the trumpets blow. Now, I told you last week, if you remember, if you think about Robin Hood, this is a good picture of this, all the time, Robin Hood and Maid Marian and their band of merry men, are trying to make things better, right? But the reality is that things are still bad. Only they're kind of the opposite in this story, and that is that they're the bad guys robbing the road. But we won't, we'll talk about that. Um, but the reality is that things are not going to be made better until the king comes. Now, we've all been clearing the roads, we've been taking care of the bad guys, and now we hear the trumpet. And when we hear the trumpet, we all just get on our horses, our mopeds, our go-karts, wherever we are economically, we just start running, however it is. We go towards the trumpet. We've cleared the roads. We're headed towards this trumpet sound. And as soon as we meet up with the king and his army, what happens is, and, it, and it, it's when it says here that we are caught up together, we meet the army, we meet the king, and all of a sudden, when outsiders look at that group of people, the king and his soldiers, they don't see the townspeople because we've all become the king's people. And so as we re-enter into our city, as we cross the paths that we've straightened, as we enter into this new city, we enter in as the king's people and not as the villagers. Our entire identity in an instant has been changed. That's exciting. Last time only my wife cheered for that. Come on, guys. Yay! There you go. That, that, if you were here last week, you know what I'm talking about. That's exciting. Okay, so now we're talking about the birth of Jesus, right? We're, we're remembering the birth of Jesus. This thing that we're talking about now that I 
talking to you about is about after the death and resurrection of Jesus and he's ascended into heaven. What he says is, I'm going to come back. So, before the birth of Jesus is the period of waiting. People are waiting for the king. Now, for you and I, as people on the other side of the birth of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus, we're in the age of the disciple, in the age of the people who make the path straight, in the age of the, where we point out and try to rein in evil. Right? So, Advent, then, is a process where we actually we use Advent to begin to straighten the past in our life. It's a marker in the church calendar that says stop. Stop and begin to think about what you've been doing. Okay. So last week we looked at John the Baptist because John the Baptist is good at telling us how to clear paths. Right? But before I get there, for those of you who weren't here, let me tell you exactly what Advent is. Jesus' birthday happens on December 25th, right? Okay, so we think. It used to be placed on January 6th. But there is this debaucherous thing in the Roman society that happened from December 17th to December 25th, where all of the law shut down and people pretty much could do whatever they wanted to do. In fact, each village would pick one of you, so we pick Russ, and we would give Russ everything he wanted and all the pleasures and all the food for a week, and then we kill him to atone for all our sins. Okay, that's part of what would happen. Now, the Christians, thinking that they could do some missionary work, they decided to move Jesus' birthday to the end of this very debaucherous celebration and to begin to try to deal with what was going on. And they wanted to throw a big Jesus feast. So Christmas, on the 25th, the celebration of Jesus' birthday, is a big feast. All religious feasts need preparation. Right? You can't not prepare. So Advent, which means waiting or the coming, is four weeks before Christmas, and it is the time when you stop and you get ready to celebrate Jesus' birthday. And so last week I said, hey, let's... Look at John the Baptist and what he's telling people to do, and let's use that as a way to prepare in Advent, right? And so the first candle in Advent is the royal candle. It's the candle of hope, the candle of the king. And that was last week. And the second candle is the candle of love. And so last week I said, John the Baptist called us to repent and be baptized, right? So I asked you guys to think of some things that you needed to repent of, confess, and then do something symbolic. I didn't know how this was gonna, what was gonna happen to this, but somewhere in there, spontaneously, I suggested that maybe you make a Christmas ornament. That represents kind of your baptism, you confessed stuff. So all of a sudden, some of the Bible studies at our church started taking ornaments and writing all of their sins on it and then what God had to say to them. And so now they have cinnamons. Yes, they have cinnamons. Or repentiments. Right? <laughs> to put on their trees. Okay? Which is pretty awesome. But the second thing I, I asked you to think about was your entitlement. Right? Because John the Baptist speaks out against the entitlement of the rulers of the Hebrew people. And in the midst of that, I talked about how all the noise that you and I live in, and so I asked that maybe 
symbolically to deal with the noise, we wouldn't bring our cell phones and our iPads and our to church. Okay, so if you didn't know why that was, that's what happened. So in prepping for the king, our job was to repent, to think about our entitlement, maybe to make some funny ornaments, right? But here's the thing: if you and I are in that village, why? Why would we be excited about the king? What, what, why would we be excited? That's the question. We, because if you hear the king's coming, you would think that maybe that's scary because maybe you hadn't been loyal to the king. So why would you be so excited that you might start making straight the path? That you might start repenting and confessing? Well, I'd like to read to you really quickly 1 John um, 4, 9. First John 4, 9 and following says this, This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that He might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. Here is the remarkable thing about being a follower of Jesus. All other philosophies, all other religions are ultimately about you. About your transcendence, about your doing better, about your rules, your ideas about things. The reasons to do things never come from this idea that the God of the universe who created you loved you so much that He sent His Son to die for you. That the reason that you and I would get the road straight, we would repent, we would confess, is because the God of the universe actually loves you. So the King who's coming, the reason that you and I get all excited is that The king is coming and he loves us. The picture here is for those, you know, when dad shows up at the front door and little kids squeal because dad's home for work or mom's been on a long trip and all of a sudden she shows up and it's squealing little kids, hugging her and climbing all over her because man, living with dad was a little crazy. Right? That, that love, that's the, that's the excitement and that's the life and that's the motivation of a disciple. The reason that you and I repent and confess is not to get things better or to make things okay or to have everybody like us or have society work well. The reason that we do anything good is because the God of the universe hung himself on a tree to pay for your sin. So that's exciting. That's not depressing. That's exciting. That's the motivation for us. So the second week of Advent is all about love. It's all about focusing on the sacrifice that this baby Jesus, the God of the universe, becoming man, hanging out with us, offered us through his life and death. Till we respond to that. Tonight what I'd like to do is just spend a little time thinking about that response by looking at Romans chapter 13. Now the leaders for a couple of years continue to tell me that we should speak on Romans. So here's your one time. I'm going to get to, you're going to hear me talk about Romans. 
Romans scares me. Um, someday I will speak on Romans and Revelation, but it's not going to happen right now. Yes, back to back. Romans and Revelation. All right. Romans chapter 13. Now, Romans is a letter to the Romans by the Apostle Paul. It's written in the time of Nero. Okay, For those of you who are good history buffs, then you know who Nero is. We're going to look at chapter 13, verse 8, and we're going to finish out the chapter. So, verse 8 says this, and this is all in we're thinking about love. Love is the theme, the love of God poured out on the cross. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continued debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and whatever other commands there may be, are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So this text starts out that you, those of us who are followers of Jesus, there's this idea that you shouldn't owe anybody anything. Now this doesn't mean that you shouldn't lend people things, but there is a principle within Scripture that's basically, if you lend someone else money, don't charge interest. And consider it a loss when you give them the money, like that you may, you're not going to get it back. And if you do, it's a blessing. Okay, so he's saying, don't have any kind of thing in between you. But here's the thing that you continually owe one another. And that's love. So when you and I decide to be followers of Jesus, we're in debt. And we're in debt to one another and we're in debt to Jesus. Jesus gave his life for us. And so now the debt we owe is to love our neighbor. To love our neighbor. Now, that means your real neighbor, the guy who lives next door. It means the people that you're sitting next to right now. It means that person in this community and at work that you really don't know how to talk to. You don't know what to say. You just stare at each other and say weird things, right? It's the person who's hurt your feelings. It's the person who's taken you to court. It's everyone. You are in debt to love. The thing that motivates you is Jesus' love to you, Jesus' love to them. That's, that's the driving thing. Now here, he goes off and he lists, you shouldn't commit adultery. You shouldn't steal. Now, here's the picture. You know that little village that I've been talking about? In the mind of Paul, the writer, that village isn't actually excluded far away from the main city. That village is actually dead center in the middle of the actual city, right? So what he's thinking when he's writing the church in Rome is that they're a city themselves and they're inside the city of Rome. Now, if you know anything about Nero, what are the pillars of Nero's life? He was an adulterer. He was a murderer. He was someone who coveted. Right? All these four things, they describe Nero. They describe who he was. And what Paul is saying, I think here, very clearly is that the world around you is not the value system of love. That you are in opposition to it. Okay. So when you don't commit adultery, which is selfishness, right? When you don't murder, 
when you don't participate in these things, you're not being about yourself. You're being about other people. You're being about love. And it makes an announcement. It makes a proclamation. See, Lane and Mark, I'm going to use them a lot today. When people came to church, I don't know how many saw Rod, right? Rod's this huge man. And he was pretending or really being giddy by jumping up and down and clapping and acting like a little girl, right? He was making an announcement that something special happened. What, what Paul is saying here is that the act of love, when you as a community don't commit adultery, okay, when you don't murder, when you don't covet, want something, somebody else's stuff, right? When you really don't want Rod's goatee, when you're not coveting that, then there's this, then you're announcing the way of love. Now, it's important because Paul is trying to set up this picture of a contrary nation, a, a, a people that act differently. The part of clearing the roads and making sure that the brigands aren't around there, it's a thing about your life. And you're making an announcement. Now, in verse 11, it says, And do this. Understand the present time. The hour has already come for you to wake up from your slumber. Because our salvation is near, now, nearer now than when it was first believed. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. When my brother was in high school, Joel, my middle brother, he went to UHS at the time at the University High. At the time that he went to University High here in town, it was ranked number one in the nation as a school. He did hours and hours and hours of homework. In fact, when he finished all his AP tests, I think he had 40 or 50 credits going into college. He got a double major in three and a half years. It's really smart. But one of the problems was he couldn't get up in the morning. So what would happen is, is I would go in his room and I would pull him. He'd wrap himself up in a blanket in the morning. I would pull him out into the living room while my little brother or my mother with a squirt bottle were spraying him in the face telling him, wake up. Wake up! And, and it took us a while to get him out of bed. But we're the reason he did so well in college. Right? We're the, he would... That's, that's exactly. That's why he's at another church. He's tired of getting sprayed in the face. But here's the thing. Paul is painting a picture. And what he's saying is, is that the culture that you and I live in isn't a culture of love. It's a culture that's driven by selfishness and by greed and by a desire for things that they don't possess. Okay? And what happens is, is that you and I, because we live in it, get, we, become, we get anesthetized. We, we become part of our culture. We... We're part of it. Now you might say, hey, I, I'm, I'm not part of my culture. Well, Jesus said that if you hate someone, you've murdered them. If you 
If you've ever looked at pornography or longed for someone else's husband or somebody who isn't yours, then you've committed adultery. We can go through these things. We've, we've all participated in them. Here's the thing. Forget all of those. You and I, I know, I talk to a lot of you, you get caught up in your television shows, right? And you don't think it's that big of a deal, right? But if we just take a moment here, we'll make confessional time. Let's confess the shows that we're addicted to, right? I like Castle. I've been following Castle for a long time, all right? So come on, let's, let's confess. What are the things that you're watching? College football. Duck Dynasty. How I Met Your Mother. What's that? Elementary. What's that? Walking, walking Dead. Parks and Rec. Doctor Who. I know it's a big one here. Right? But well, I don't, you know, I'm not saying we should stop watching shows, but what I think you don't realize, maybe you realize it but don't care, is that the more you watch these, this is the world's way of thinking. And you think that somehow you're capable of filtering out all of the garbage that's told to you over and over again. But the thing is, you're not. You're not capable. In fact, you're in, inside, you want the value system of the world. And there's a whole bunch of other things. It's not just television, but I know as, as people with children, when the children are in bed, we're tired, and when we're tired, a television show feels really good. Only it begins to, you know, you start watching 24 and then it's 5 in the morning and you've watched a ton of 24, right? True. You watch 24 hours of 24. Very good. But what happens is, is when you and I partake of those things, we, we become anesthetized. We, we fall asleep. We begin to live in the dark. Now this is what Advent and Lent why we have a church calendar where we stop is for, it's right here with Paul, it's this. Wake up, people. He's telling us to wake up. Stop being consumed by the value systems of the world. Stop for a minute and think. Wait. Figure this out. Remember that what we do is, is it's not about all of that stuff. It's about Jesus it's about being motivated by love towards one another. Wake up! Because what happens is that we actually end up with the armor of darkness instead of the armor of light. Our, our minds become muddled. We're unable to deal with our problems because we have to sort through a lot of stuff that's not good and we haven't been feeding our brain with things that are good. And so it's difficult for us to make good choices. Wake up, Paul says. This is your dragged out into the living room squirt bottle in the face time. This is what I'm trying to do. So imagine yourself. I'm dragging you into the living room. I'm pouring water on your head. That's what Paul's doing to us. And he says, we need to wake up. We need to put on the armor of light. And so he's going to tell us how to do this. Paul never leaves you without a practical way to deal with stuff. So, but Paul here is about to paint some really interesting pictures that could help us understand how we've kind of slipped into things. So he says, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. 
Okay. So we're going to start with debauchery and drunkenness. This word, um, not debauchery, carousing and drunkenness. This word carousing um, actually is a word that describes an event that sometimes had a, a title to it and sometimes didn't um, in Greek society. But what it basically is, is like a frat guys going to a bar, getting really drunk, then going outside, taking off their clothes, and going in front of you know the houses of the girls and singing wildly and drunk, drunken. And this was actually a part of uh, Greek culture and Roman culture. It was part of these celebrations was just to go wandering around half naked singing, carousing. Right, that's where we get this word. And drunkenness. Now, a lot, I, some of you have probably participated in that in your life. I hope you're not participating in that now. But here's the thing: most of us, when we hear that, are like, "I'm not carousing." I haven't taken off my shirt and run through the streets singing to, you know, unknown women. That's not happened. I'm pretty sure. Unless I sleepwalk, right? This does not happen. But what happens? I don't know if you've ever been to... Um, I went to a Michael Moore event, okay? And I'm not picking on uh, the liberal side of the world, but I went to a Michael Moore event because Karen, wherever she is, her band was opening for Michael Moore. That's a pretty cool thing. Um, I got to see Karen on the Jumbotron. That was pretty, that, it was a little scary. <laughs> but there were obviously some conservative protesters there. And there's probably, I don't know, 10,000 of us at this thing. And Michael Moore's obviously, you know, a little bit of a liberal, which is fine. I liked what he has to say at times. But I was pretty sure that at any moment, if he gave the word, we'd all get down and go kill those people who were yelling, right? And trying to disrupt things. Like, we, we lose our ability to think straight when we're in a group. Right? Sometimes, you know, group think is a whole principle. Like, people, good people do really stupid things when they get in groups and the group gets mad. Right? Well, here's what, what Paul is saying. Where have you metaphorically found yourself in this culture to the point where you are in a groupthink mode. You're not in a Jesus-think mode. You're in a groupthink mode in a world's value system. You're drunk and carousing philosophically with the world's value system, with a value system that is selfish and not of love, where you've lost the ability, where you've done stupid things because you've bought in. You've lived in your impulse. Okay? Paul says, let us not do that. Let's not get caught up in the group think around us. Let, let's have clear heads. Let's live in the daytime. That's the first picture he's painting. Let's not get stuck in that. The second one, sexual immorality, right? That's there. And, uh, and debauchery. Now, this is an interesting thing. The word for sexual immorality actually is used a lot of places just for bed, right? But it's usually in the context of what happens between a husband and wife or people who are together sexually in a bed. It's not always a bad word. Like it's translated that way because of how these two words are connected. Okay? It's talking in particular here about this, the sexual act done outside of marriage. But when you connect it to this word debauchery, this idea of this word is um, 
It really means to be selfish and to be about yourself sexually, to be just drunk with, with that. So you might be able to say right now, I'm not participating in these things. Like, I, I'm not committing adultery. Maybe, maybe you are. But here, here's what I want to say. Number one, these two words connected together, let's just go out from inside to out. Inside of marriage, what it's saying is, if you are somebody who is selfish about your sexuality, then you are living, and violent about your sexuality, then you are living out the value system of the world. Even inside of marriage, when you become about you sexually, you're living out the value system of the world. The other thing that Paul is talking about, and here's, here's, I gotta stop for a minute. Half of the women in Rome were prostitutes. Good half of them. That was a way to make money and to live. If you think, if you're one of those people who think the world is really bad now, I suggest you go live in first century Rome. It was ten times worse than anything you can possibly imagine. And so when Paul is talking about this, he's saying that when you become a person of, of cleanliness sexually in your marriage and outside of your marriage, you are, you're going to make such an announcement. It's, you're going to, you're going to stand out. You're not going to be someone living in the darkness. Now, in our culture, the main place that a lot of this happens is on the internet, on your phone, right? In, in romance novels, in the shows that you watch, you get caught up in the romances. You know, all of us are happy to watch Scandal. We're happy to watch all of these shows that are built around people sleeping with each other and people living lives that are just disastrous. None of us really want to watch the happy shows. The ones where morality is lifted up. That's, that's no fun, right? We like our movie stars to screw up. We, we really want them to because it, we, we live vicariously through them. This is what Paul's talking about. Paul's talking about, that's the message just, you guys gotta cut yourself off from that. Because that's the way of darkness and not the way of light. So picture number two is, you need to ask yourself, where are you sexually? Like, where is, is your sexuality selfish or is your sexuality driven on the sacrifice of Jesus for your sin? Number three, he says that we shouldn't be people who are dissension, not in dissension and jealousy. Now, this word dissension is actually... Eris, who is the goddess, um, who's like twins to Ares, but she's the, the god of discord, and she's the one who actually started the Trojan War. Okay? She threw this apple. She didn't get invited to some high-end wedding. She was the only god who wasn't. It's a long story, but she's the one that causes all the problems all the time. She's the god of discord. Right? She messes everything up. Jealousy is the god Zelos, or the demon Zelos. And he's actually one of the guardians, I think, of Zeus, or sometimes one of Zeus's personalities. And that personality is the one of pure, unadulterated, jealous emotion. Right? Just poured out. And these two gods are always connected to each other. Right? Strife and jealousy. 
in Greek mythology, in Roman mythology. So Paul's painting a picture here. And he's what he's saying is, is that even the gods that this culture worships, even those gods mess everything up. Everything is screwed up. And when you participate in that, what you're participating in is in the religion of the world around you. And the religion of the world around you is to make a mess of everything. I have never even watched Scandal, but if you just go take a a perusal of all of the shows that are being shown right now, and I know I'm beating up TV for a little bit here, but look at the, because that's what announces our value system, the world's value system. Look at it. It's all built around discord constantly around dissension and jealousy and wanting something that someone else has. That makes the good story. And that's, Paul's saying, that's the clothing of darkness. So you need to ask yourself in Advent, in the time, in the week of love, have I bought into the religion of my culture? Am I a person of discord and jealousy? You know, and and the question there, you have to, Ask yourself, is do is there times in my life where I look around and I say, I want what that person has. I want their prestige. I want how people like them. I want to have what they have. Or are you a person, by choice or by maybe subconsciously, you're constantly poking, you're constantly causing discord, you're, you're make, you're, you say things you shouldn't say because you know your words have power and they cause discord. That's the religion of our world. So, those are the three things in the time of Advent that Paul is calling us to begin to think about once we make straight the past. Now he says, Instead of wearing those as clothes, instead of wearing them, rather clothe yourself, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Okay. So what Paul says is the solution to this is, is that you have to put on Jesus. Now here's the really thing that's cool about Jesus. All the things I just listed out, you all participated in. You all caused discord. You all are jealous. You all have participated in sexual immorality. I include myself in this. You all have bought into the the value systems of this world. And yet, here's the cool thing about putting on Christ. Putting on Christ is actually about forgiveness. Putting on Christ is actually about understanding that even though you participate in those things, even though that's who you've been, Jesus forgives you. And so when you're putting on Jesus, what you're putting on is forgiveness. Now, I don't know if you've watched these two lovely people that you've had to be staring at, right? And I'm just going to embarrass them and I have no permission to do this. Right? Right? But, But over the last two months, we've watched the two of them be extremely giddy about each other, right? And in particular, one person right, in this relationship we watch really be giddy. And we'll just be honest about it. We know who she is. <laughs> I was thinking it was 
smart. Yeah. He's been very giddy too, but his smile is just not quite as big as hers. I'm embarrassed. But here, here's the thing, that something we can learn from Lane. Is that putting on Jesus is actually a falling in love and giddy experience. This is where when we hear Jesus is coming, we get excited. The reason that we even would look at all of these things that Paul lays out for us is because Jesus died for us, he loves us, and he's coming. And so it's not a depressing thing to be like, oh gosh, I need to think about how, you know, the things, my sexual issues, and no, no, I gotta think about how I'm jealous. And the... No, it's like, I'm excited! Because Jesus is coming, He's going to make me new. And so, for a moment, I can stop. I can put on Jesus. I can be thankful. That's what Advent is for. Advent is not saying, hey, you're going to make, you're all going to be better people next Advent. Because you won't be. You'll have improved a little bit here and there, but I'm sure a lot of you have just backslidden, right? Advent and Lent, in particular Advent, I know, I'm just being hard on you. Okay. It's not true, but, Here's the, I just got a frown from my mom. That's the only reason I was correcting everything. <laughs> but it, it, it's a blessing to have your mother in the audience and there's a curse as well. But the exciting thing about Advent is it's the moment when we're told to wake up, to remember the reality that we live in. And the reality is that Jesus, this little baby, God of the universe, lived out a life that you couldn't live. And He died on the cross for your sins. And that when you look at these things and they point at you and say, you did this and you did this and you're this way, Jesus says, no. I died for those things. There's no shame. Now put on me and stop thinking about yourself. Stop making it about you. Put on me and remember. Be like Lane. Be giddy that Jesus is coming. Smile with a big smile because things are going to be made new. And that clearing the past may be really difficult in your life. But it's not to get it right. What it is is to make a very loud announcement because this is what disciples do. We make an announcement by living out our life that Jesus is coming. The King is coming. When you are not jealous and act in love, you're making an announcement. The king is coming. So when you think about looking at all these things, don't get depressed. Don't think, I can't do that. Forget it, Eric. I'm not going to think about it. Know that as you approach them and as you wrestle with them and as you talk to people about them, that you're making a big, loud announcement to the world around you that the king is coming and he's going to make things new and that everybody can be part of that. That's what Advent is. That's what the second week of Advent is. I would normally at this point ask what time it is, but none of you have cell phones, so let's pray. Ah, very good. You have a watch. The analog person answered for us. Let's pray. Dear Father in Heaven, thank You so much for sending Your Son to die for us. And thank You for giving us this opportunity to stop and remember and to wake up. Help me to wake up. Help me to be a person who makes the announcement that You're coming. I ask that in Your name, Jesus. Amen. A couple ways to respond to the Word of God. Number one is through offering. There's hardly any of you on the side, but I'll just can figure it out. This is uh, if you're visiting with us, we're just happy to have you. You don't need to give anything. If you are a villager, um, this is how we pay for the pastors and keep the lights on and feed you and all those good things. 
Um, so please give as God calls you to. The other way to respond uh, is through that chair over there. It says the sinner's chair, and it has lovely little things written on it, um, like en- anger and envy and all those nice things. But as we always say, it's not because it's not just about you sitting on there announcing that you're a sinner. It's you struggling with your own sin or sin against you or just needing prayer. Sit in that chair. Someone will come and pray for you. If God puts on your heart to be prayed for today. The other way is through communion. And communion is all about being thankful. When you come up here and you take the bread, this bread uh, is Jesus' body and it's broken for you. And as you come and take the cup, I believe these are both juice, right Wayne? Okay. They're both juice. As you take the cup and you dip your bread in that juice, remember that this is Jesus' blood shed for you, for your sins. And be thankful. It's not a depressing thing. It's an exciting thing. And so part of being a Christian is actually communion. It's coming and taking the bread and, and the wine and the blood. Because you, and we put it in the middle because when you come up here, you're making an announcement. You're saying, I'm with Jesus. I need Jesus. 